You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 546 of this podcast. Today is... Friday, January 27th, 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Communist Manifesto, as well as where we here in the United States of America find ourselves when Google is laying off 6% of its workforce, when Project Veritas has caught a Pfizer executive talking about how that company is mutating COVID to try and develop new vaccines and how that's a cash cow. Also, we'll be talking about Christian nationalism versus something called Christian federalism. What is that? What's the difference? What are we talking about? And in closing, we'll say a word or two about emotional control. But before we get into all of that, I took the Enneagram in part last night, in part this morning. I started it and then realized I had started it too late in the evening last night. And so decided to stop, pick it back up again over a cup of coffee in the morning. But I'm not going to tell you about my test results. Fear not. If you were starting to get a little bit squirrely, like, oh boy, here we go. Why do I care that much what Garrett's personality type is? Garrett's personality type is the annoying guy who tells us what his personality type is at length and makes a whole episode about it. No, I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to do that. You can find out. You can ask me privately. I'm not afraid to tell you. I just don't want to bore you. But regardless what my results are, what should we make of personality tests when it comes to the Christian life and how we relate to other people is the Enneagram. Is it witchcraft? Is it hocus pocus? Is it nonsense? Is it a waste of time? Is it giving too much credit to psychology? Is it kind of like a scientific horoscope, right? You're Scorpio. And so you are going to have a really great year this year, but watch out for Taurus because Taurus is going to give you some bull. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, you know, and I, I've taken the Enneagram before. I think that my results were uh, very similar. I'd, I'd have to look through my computer hard drives and see if I've got results saved somewhere else. I probably do, but the same holds true, not just for the Enneagram, although some Christians, they're especially worried about the Enneagram that it's like palm reading. It's like getting your horoscope. It's too close to witchcraft and all the rest. Set aside the Enneagram. Let's talk Myers-Briggs type indicator, MBTI as it's known. I've got 16personalities.com up in part because the website that I was taking the Enneagram test at wanted to know what is my MBTI? What, What am I? And there I will say, I mean, it's changed over the years a couple of times. And some people will say, well, if it changes, if it ever changes, well, then it's you know totally unreliable. Because how do you know when your personality 
type is going to change. Well, maybe, right? Maybe that should tell us that there is a limited value at best, but limited value is pretty much everything except for the grace of God. The grace of God, because God is infinite, there's an infinite value to that in our lives. The special grace of God in Christ, there's an unlimited value to that. Everything else has a limited value. If I go downstairs and I get some breakfast, there's a limited value. That food is only going to stay with me for so long. If I go outside and walk around the block for half an hour to get some exercise, to get some fresh air, to get some sunshine, there's a limited value to that as well. At a certain point, I'm going to have to go back out again in order to replenish, but we don't say that it's either going to last forever, the value, or it's worth nothing. No, that's just, that's not wise. That's not a wise way to approach it. So I think that critique of personality tests, I think that that doesn't hold water. Another thing that I don't think holds water with regards to personality tests is that because we might put some stock in what they are telling us about ourselves, it's therefore an either or with our Christian faith. Some I've known over the years, particularly if they're more in the John MacArthur camp of conservative Christians, they are very hostile to psychology as a field. And so if psychology will start making some claims about human nature and about how our will and our motivations and our decision-making and our attitude all could be tweaked or improved or could be described apart from using biblical language. Therefore, it's either or. We're setting up a competing theory to go with a psychological analysis of ourselves and one another instead of what the Bible says about us. What the Bible says about us is that our hearts are hopelessly deceitful, corrupt, sinful, wicked. And, you know, why, why make it complicated? Just rebuke your emotions, rebuke your thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking, rebuke your folly, rebuke your sin, rebuke temptation, rebuke your failure to do what you ought to do, rebuke what you do when you do what you ought not to do. Here's my perspective. If you start with God's word and you then examine a personality test or a psychological term or literally anything, anything that we could come across that would be under the umbrella of general revelation. If you start with God's word and then assess all of these other claims or analyses or explanations if you start with God's word, then you can make a good use of what it is that you're reading and what it is that you're hearing, even if it's not coming from an explicitly Christian source, even if it's not coming from the Bible. And so if that's true, if God hasn't told us explicitly, thou shalt not take a MBTI at 16personalities.com, thou shalt not take the Enneagram at truity.com. If if that's not what I find in the word, and I also don't find the violation of a 
clear principle. Some people's consciences are weaker, some are stronger. Who's who and which is which? In this case, I'll leave to you to figure out. But if somebody says, well, there's a principle here that this just, it, it feels too close to witchcraft. I can't do it in good conscience. Okay, then don't. Then don't. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to tear you down if you can't do this in good conscience. So also, please don't use your freedom to abstain to destroy me or other Christians who would take a personality test and say, ah, interesting. Yes, I, I think that is true. I, I, think, I think this does maybe explain why I respond in certain situations the way that I do. But I think back to early on in Lawrence and my marriage, are having a conversation with a certain uncle and aunt of mine, and I won't say which uncle and aunt, and that uh, shuffles the deck pretty well because I have a dozen sets. Some have passed away. Most are still with us. But in talking with a particular set of aunt and uncle in my family, the topic came up and was brought up of inappropriate shyness. And an example was given, a story was told of a pastor that my uncle and aunt knew who had a daughter who was particularly shy and they were talking at church or something like that somewhere that they were bumping into each other. And this daughter didn't say hi to my uncle and my aunt. And her father, the pastor, said, you need to say hi to them. And she didn't want to say hi because she's painfully shy. And she was kind of burying her face in his leg the way that children sometimes can do. And they said, oh, no, it's fine. It's, it's okay. She's, she's just shy. She doesn't know us. And this father and pastor said, no, 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 no. It's not okay. Excuse me. We're going to go chat she and I. And so he did. He took her back to some private room and spanked her and then brought her again to them and said, okay, now I want you to say hi. I want you to say hello. And she did, right? She did. And then when she scampered off, because that's what he wanted, that's all he wanted was her to say hello and to be polite. He explained, he says, well, you know, once I've told her to say hello, the point is not that she's shy and she's feeling a certain feeling. The, the point is she needs to do what she's supposed to be doing, which is obeying her father, for instance, and not caring more about how she feels than she does about a duty to consider the other person in the first place, me as a father. In the second place, you as our guests or as people that we uh, need to make introductions to or talk with or be considerate of. And all of that is to say, if the perspective communicated in that interchange that was being communicated to me and to my wife, who has a tendency, I don't know if this is what brought it up, but my wife has a tendency to be you know, shy sometimes. I have a tendency to not like small talk. <laughs> I like to have uh, you know, big conversations about meaningful topics, and if that doesn't interest somebody, then it's like, well, maybe I, maybe they don't interest me. Maybe I don't want to talk with them at all because <laughs> it's not going to go well. I'm going to keep trying to steer it back to something I think is substantive, and they're going to keep trying to ask about the weather, and let's just skip it. Whatever the reason, right? Whatever the reason that this uncle and aunt of mine brought up this story, 
The point is that some Christians who think that that is the way that we should approach everybody, not just our small child who is being shy or willful or disobedient, they do not see a value in personality tests because they think that that should be our response in every circumstance. If you're introverted, if you're extroverted, if you're all peopled out a lot easier than somebody else is, it doesn't matter because whatever you need to be doing, you need to be rebuked if you're not doing it. Whatever you're not supposed to be doing, you need to be rebuked if you are doing it. And it's as simple as that. And what I would say to that sentiment is sometimes what we're supposed to be doing in the particulars can be figured out by taking an inventory of who we are, where we're at, how God has made us in an individual sense. Yeah, there's true statements that we can make about us on the macro by virtue of being human beings, for instance. But then when you drill down into the particulars, not everybody has the same, and we'll use this as a a biblical category, a biblical example. Not everybody has the same spiritual gifts, for instance, and we're told that. So if you say, well, healing is in the Bible, and so somebody is sick, and you need to, when you find out somebody is sick, you need to pray for healing. And if they don't get healed, well, then I'm going to rebuke you for not healing them the way that some people have in the Bible, a spiritual gift of healing. Well, I'm not so fast. That's not quite how this works. Thank you very much. If God has given you a spiritual gift to where you are able to lay hands on somebody who's sick and you are able to heal them by God's power, then praise God. That's phenomenal. That's fantastic. Not everybody has that. And some people think that that's not even for today, which I disagree with. I may not have that gift, but then that's up to God, right? It's up to God. And I would say that that's another thing that I would say. I would say that that's something I would say to somebody who dismisses personality tests because they might change over time. Your results might change. I would say that somebody being without the ability to have a spiritual gift or exercise that spiritual gift at a certain point in their life, either before or after it appears that they had that spiritual gift, that doesn't invalidate that God may have for a time given them the ability to do certain things. And then that time passes and then it pleases God to remove the ability to do X, Y, and Z. We are finite creatures. We are temporal. So we exist within time. And we, being finite and temporal, not just sinful, but just finite and temporal, we are not complete from the jump, from the get-go. Lawrence and my youngest son turned one years old yesterday. And I just learned, by the way, that my wife thinks that that's mild, mildly annoying when I say one years old because I think I'm being funny, but I'm not being funny. Maybe that's possible. But our youngest son, he turned one year old. He turned one yesterday. Is that the right way to say it? Is that the better way to say it? He turned one yesterday. And he, over the course of the last year, has started to be able to stand up on the edge of furniture. He scoots around on his bottom. He wasn't doing that when he very first was born. He is eating solid foods now. He wasn't doing that when he was very first born. 
he's starting to talk or make an effort to talk. He'll point at the ceiling fan, for instance, and he'll say, wow. And that's his word for the ceiling fan, which he's just fascinated by. Wow. He, he's a fan of the fan. So he wasn't born talking. He was born able to cry. But you, you get my point, right? Over time, as we are helping him to cultivate these common abilities that not everybody has. I mean, some people can't walk. Some people are not able to see. Some people are not able to speak. Some people are not able to hear. But he has all the common abilities. As we are helping him to grow in those, it's not an either or, right? Just because I might not find in my Bible a detailed step-by-step instruction on how to teach my child to walk or to read or to speak or to fill out a personal organizer with their plans for the week. What's coming up on Wednesday? What's coming up on Thursday? Does anybody have anything for Friday? That doesn't mean that to pursue resources or develop resources in those areas is somehow a competition where we're looking for a substitute savior. I think there's a spiritually abusive aspect to rushing to condemn, rebuke, criticize, marginalize, diminish extra biblical resources, even those produced by non-Christians. Should we be wary? Yes, I think we should be wary. Should we guard our hearts? Yes, I think we should guard our hearts. Absolutely. But Guarding your heart needs to be more than just an on-off switch, a either I am all in or nothing. It needs to guard your heart. It, it, you know, Think of it like a castle, right? Imagine that your heart is a castle. If your heart never opens up the drawbridge, either to let anything out or to let anything in, your heart will starve to death. That's not very good guarding. In the Middle Ages, that was very common for there to be these castles that just were all over the countryside as this feudal lord or this baron or this chief or this prince or this duke or this king was presiding over his landed estates, his holdings. And if a neighbor decided to come out against him with an army, whoever the liege lord was over that castle could bring all his soldiers, all his people, all his livestock, all his goods into the castle and be able to defend themselves or perhaps wait until the attackers calmed down, got bored, ran out of supplies and left. But if the castle is besieged, part of what's going on with besieging a castle is you are getting the defenders to use up all of their supplies And if you have a castle under siege, you don't want to let those in the castle get back out to gather more supplies. Essentially, you want them to get weaker and weaker and weaker because they run out of food, they run out of water, maybe illness spreads, and there's nowhere to go. You want them to run out of food and run out of supplies. If you are being besieged by a larger, more powerful force, and they're able to get supplies, keep themselves fed, keep themselves healthy and strong as they just wait. What you want to do is you want to be able to get out of the castle 
maybe sneak out, maybe break the siege, maybe get a messenger to go and ask a neighbor to bring their army to help you, to help lift the siege. And if you don't do that, then it is just a question of time. You will lose. At a certain point, the supplies will run out. And if you're not going out to get more supplies, then the enemy is going to take your castle. And so I think when we guard our hearts, we need to be guarding our hearts in a wise way, not just shutting ideas, sentiments, advice, insight completely out, unless it comes from God himself. Think of it like a password if you need to. Somebody knocks on the castle door, the castle gate. Hey, let me in. I'm a friend. Hey, wait a second. What's the password? Password? What do you mean password? <laughs> well, don't let that guy in. <laughs> I don't recognize you and you don't know the password. No. Nope. <clears throat> but moving on. Enough about personality tests. Not the B, which I really appreciate. I enjoy. It's interesting how I came to start following Not the B was, I think my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, mentioned it. He said, yeah, did you know that there's actually a website that is news items, current events, that they actually, there's such ridiculous stories that people would think, if you didn't say this is not the Babylon Bee, people would think this is satire because it's just that outrageous. Well, that was not the Bee. Adam Ford, who actually started Babylon Bee and then sold it and got out, uh, Adam Ford is actually the founder of Not the Bee. And Not the Bee is a really great resource if you're looking for just a quick overview, almost like Drudge Report used to be, a quick take on what's going on. They scour the internet and collect videos and news items, and they'll share various things that are going on, current events items, on their website at notthebee.com. But Joel Abbott, he's got a lot of really good ones. This thread, he writes, on Christian nationalism versus Christian federalism is the one you've been looking for. This is published just yesterday, and it is highlighting a certain Josh Dawes over at Twitter. And I'm just going to read through this for you. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through it, and then I've got a thought or two to share with you. Josh Dawes writes, two distinct projects seem to be coalescing under the term Christian nationalism. I believe they need to be differentiated and disentangled. A proposal. Project one is primarily concerned with the philosophical and theological justifications for a distinctly Christian nation and exploring what that could look like. This is a broad project, theoretically applicable to any nation. Project two is primarily concerned with recovering America's Christian political heritage. Everything Project two seeks has existed at some point in American history. This is a project focused on America with limited application to other Western nations. Project one is best represented by Perfin Just and his book on the subject. This is a project of big ideas and challenging questions. It seeks to reevaluate long-held assumptions about nationalism, classical liberalism, 
democracy, etc. Project 2 is practically focused on tangible goals like ending abortion, opposing trans ideology, promoting the good of families, protecting marriage, and unapologetically promoting Christian moral standards in America. There is value in both projects. The work produced by Project One is helpful in that it challenges Christians to articulate and re-examine their political theology. It reveals just how much the post-war liberal consensus, see Reno's Return of the Strong Gods, which is great, by the way. R.R. Reno's Return of the Strong Gods is an excellent, excellent read. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. It's on this very subject. R.R. Reno being uh, the guy who started First Things Magazine, which we reference quite a lot on this podcast. Definitely go check out Return of the Strong Gods. But back to Josh Dawes. It reveals, this is Project One, it reveals just how much the post-war liberal consensus has infiltrated Christian thinking on politics. Project Two is helpful in giving concrete political objectives to Christians who have come to recognize that the secular liberal order was never neutral. It cultivates a will to govern according to a Christian moral framework. It rejects blessings of liberty, pacifism. These two projects are related, but aren't nearly aligned enough to share the same moniker of Christian nationalism. Project One often acts as a bailey to Project Two's Mott. And what were we just talking about with castles, a Mott and Bailey? <laughs> I love it. A Mott being a moat, a bailey being the, uh, you know, smallish, reasonable sized castle structure inside the moat. Project One often acts as a bailey to Project Two's mont, causing those involved in Project Two to feel like they have to defend the more controversial arguments of Project One. For example, no one in Project Two has ever suggested banning the practice of Hinduism in America. The question of whether or not public expression of false religion should be prohibited by a theoretical Christian nation might be a totally valid question to consider, but it's counterproductive to the agenda of Project 2. By its very nature, Project 1 is unconcerned with gaining popular support. Project 2, however, seeks recovery within the constitutional system of the United States. That means it has to be concerned with building a coalition if it ever hopes to accomplish anything. Project 2 shouldn't borrow hurdles from Project 1 that would keep would-be allies from joining the project. You shouldn't have to understand or even consider arguments that a Christian monarchy would be superior to our constitutional republic in order to join the project. I have become convinced that the term Christian nationalism is an unnecessary hurdle for many would-be allies. The post-war liberal consensus, again, see Reno, has inextricably tied the term nationalism to Nazi or ethnocentric ideology in the minds of many Americans. Other Christians automatically think of the God and country excesses of Robert Jeffress. Much like many of us would viscerally recoil at Christian socialism, many others who share that same revulsion respond similarly to Christian nationalism. It's an unnecessary barrier to Project 2 participation. That brings me to my proposal. Yesterday, I summarized 
Project 2 as reinvigorated federalism within a Christian moral framework. I propose distinguishing between Projects 1 and 2 by referring to Project 2 as a Christian federalism and reserving Christian nationalism for Project 1. Yes, I know that the left will continue to call anyone trying to govern from a Christian moral framework a Christian nationalist. Fine, let them. I'm not suggesting we run from it or give the term any power to change our project. There are a few benefits to this name change. Christian federalism is more specific, number one, to an American context and communicates a desire to work for recovery within our constitutional republic. Number two, by having a more concrete vision of the project of Christian federalism, we avoid the impulse to defend any and everything bearing the label of Christian nationalism. Number three, we already have a wildly popular example of Christian federalism at work in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis. That's what we want. States exercising their authority to govern from a Christian moral framework. We're seeing it in action and it's working. I don't presume to be able to define and direct an entire political project. However, I hope my friends on the Christian right will consider this proposal and begin a conversation about how Christian federalism differs from the broader Christian nationalism project. TLDR, thank you very much. <laughs> For those of you who got distracted and wandered off over the past couple of minutes, here's the TLDR from Josh Dawes. Christian nationalism is a philosophical, theological project to recover a biblical understanding of church, state, and their relationship. Christian federalism is a distinctly American project that seeks to reinvigorate federalism within a Christian moral framework. How about that? Joel Abbott writes, My thoughts on the matter can be summed up by the slightly less cool Joel B. Joel Berry. Over at the Babylon B, <laughs> who tweets out Christian nationalism versus Christian federalism. This is the clarification I've needed for a long time. Excellent. Joel Abbott continues. This is a great distinction between the Deus Volt crowd that wants to return to a more medieval order of Christian homogeny, where church and state are married and those who wish to recreate a system where the gospel can grow deep roots in society as an active part of politics and culture, building on the framework those before us have laid, but with a separation of powers that does not allow any man or entity to misuse the name and kingdom of Christ for a particularly worldly cause. If you like it, the term is free to use. Get out there this Sunday and go tell your pastors about the merits of Christian federalism. <laughs> Oh, yes, I, I will. Yes, sir, I will do that. <laughs> uh, in parentheses, Joel Abbott says that some of us face a greater challenge than others with a little weeping emoji. Emoji, that's the correct pronunciation, by the way. If you didn't know, emoji, maybe, I don't know. The Babylon Bee has a piece here highlighted to keep it light or to finish off on a little bit of levity from January 23rd. Jesus was all about inclusion, says pastor confusing Jesus with Satan. <laughs> yeah, one of those two. I don't know. I had a 50-50 chance. 
Uh, what are my thoughts on this? Well, for one, I want to take some time to chew on it, but initially my initial thoughts are that uh, this is a, this is a helpful distinction. Actually, this is a helpful distinction in listening to some of the debates and actually even being involved with the reformed conservative. We need to have some separate categories for the project. There is a helpful relationship between the two, but in some sense, it's the distinction between theory and practice. In theory, this would be permissible, but as Paul writes in the New Testament, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but I will not become a slave to anything. And some of the people I've read and heard debating on Project One seem almost to be enslaved to the theory. And this is something I noticed when Stephen Wolf was interviewed by Andrew Clavin. And I think those two, I, I think that Andrew Clavin on the one hand would be much more on board with a Project Two. And when he sees Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, he recognizes that as unrealistic. That is not an attainable, realistic project. Not where we're at right now. Now, maybe if everything collapses in America and it's all post-apocalyptic, if ascending Abrams and Bradley fighting vehicles to Ukraine escalates and it turns into nuclear missiles passing each other in the air and China decides to come down from Justin Trudeau's house in the north and invade us, you know, maybe in the ashes of what we recognize now as American civilization, you have a chance to go back to Mott and Bailey's. And you get, you get to go back to my analogy earlier of guarding your heart like a castle being real and, and me not having to explain it because oh, I didn't watch that on HBO. I watched that across the street last week. <laughs> it was my castle. My castle was getting besieged. <laughs> you know, maybe in that case, with a total collapse of the United States of America, you get the deus volt intensifies and it becomes feasible. But we're not there. And actually, there's a certain wickedness to wishing that we would go there just so that we could have the latitude. I mean, we want everybody else to get destroyed so that we can have a shot at our theory being put into practice. You know, more on that in a minute when we talk about the Marxist ideal, the Communist Manifesto. I just read it yesterday, and I want to tell you a few things concerning it, concerning what I found in Marx and Engels' work. But Project 2, you know, that's compelling. That's compelling stuff, and I think it is actually realistic, and I think it is attainable. And to point to Ron DeSantis, for instance, as Josh Dawes does, you look at that. Look at Florida growing by leaps and bounds. Look at California hemorrhaging people. And as Ben Shapiro has recently pointed out and observed, on the one hand, the United States of America could look like California 
in the near future. We could decide that we want to be more like California and the Californication of not just the United States of America, but the free world will proceed apace. On the other hand, we could have the United States of America look more like Florida. And that becomes how the United States is setting the tone for the rest of the free world. Again, as we used to, and as it was good for us to, not perfect, but it was good. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Don't let the theory be the enemy of what is actually attainable. And so, you know what? I, I'm going to give it some serious thought. I, I am. Because maybe this is a better way to frame and distinguish where we're at to say, I'm for Christian federalism. I do not want a Jordan J.D. Hall, a.k.a. Gideon Knox, a.k.a. Pulpit and Pen, a.k.a. Protestia, Pope or King or Emperor deciding that if I disagree with him or if I call him out for his abusive behavior, he's going to try and burn me at the stake. I don't want that. I have no patience for that. It's an ungodly thing. It's a wicked thing. It's not just unrealistic. It's wicked. It's evil. So I don't want that. On the other hand, I refuse to accept that our options are so binary that it's either, as the left likes to say, because they're familiar with the handmaiden's tale, (laughs) it's either the handmaiden's tale or it's Brave New World. No, 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 no. There have to be more than just two options. And we are too simple in the sense of Proverbs in the Old Testament. We are too simple if we see those as our only options, either Handmaiden's Tale or Brave New World. So let's not be simple and let's actually roll up our sleeves and let's get to the hard work of doing what can be done, what can be accomplished. You know, speaking of Florida, my mother lived in Fort Myers and still has a condo there when Hurricane Ian blew through in September and hit Fort Myers square between the eyes and the waters came up and the rains beat sideways. The wind was intense. Property was destroyed. Belongings were destroyed. People lost their lives. My mother lives in Millican, Colorado right now, at least for the time being, until things are straightened out back in Florida, because it's still not quite back to how it was prior to September. And what do we not do? We don't say, oh, a hurricane blew through. And so I guess we just leave it all the way that it is right now. No, you wait for the hurricane to pass. And then when the hurricane is passed, you try and get help in cleaning up the wreckage. And yes, you do try and build back and not like Biden, but you do try to build back better. Biden's not trying to build back better. He's trying to build back woker, which is the opposite of better. He thinks it's better because the leftists who make sure he's well medicated every day want that. But if we really do love our neighbor as we love ourselves, whether he's a Christian or he isn't, we're going to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile, just like the prophet Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon. If God tells his people in Babylon to seek the welfare of the city to which he's brought them, he's brought them, well then far be it from us as exiles in the 
New Testament period to say, if we are feeling like strangers in a strange land, we're not going to seek the welfare of the city because it's filled with pagans. Boy, that's that's a great sales pitch for the gospel. Man, you just, you, you, I bet you have people just knocking down the door wanting some of that when their life is filled with every form of dysfunction and chaos and despair. No, no. And that's not in alignment with the Christian testimony and practice of 2000 years. That's not, that's out of step. So we need to get back on course. We need to circle up. We need to talk about what does God's word actually say about these things and then engage, not instead of sharing the gospel, but because this is an implication of the gospel. Not that we go into a social gospel mode, but that we recognize God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, he said. And so if there is conflict, if there is upset, but we are being faithful, it is possible to have both. And we need to remember that, particularly given the alternatives, which are more than just Handmaiden's Tale on the one hand, Brave New World on the other. Moving on. The Washington Post has a piece published a couple of days ago, tweeted out, teachers are changing their lessons amid increasing scrutiny from parents and a raft of state laws and school policies that circumscribe lessons on race and gender, according to one of the first nationally representative studies of the subject. And their little excerpt at the bottom of the tweet is... A new national survey shows that a sizable minority of teachers worry about the new climate. I agree with Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee. Good. Good. (laughs) More of that, please. (laughs) Moving on again. Check out the smirk on this man stumping for pedophilia at UC Berkeley. Jesse James over at Not The Bee shares this billboard. Chris has a video and I'll play this video for you. And then we'll talk briefly about it. Yes. So say, say your like question again, it was like 12, like would I do, I think 12 year olds having sex is a good idea. That's not what I said. Do you think a 12 year old can consent to sex with an adult? Yes. So, well, how about we first talk about a 17-year-old and then maybe work our way down? So, well, again, my whole thing is... I don't thing is, do that. I mean, you said you think a 12-year-old can consent to sex with an adult. Again, my whole thing is, like, why are we coupling age with consent? Um, so, Do you know what a child is? No, I don't. Tell me. Come on. Please, enlighten me. Is it by age that we define children? Okay, so... My man. Yes? Do you remember what it is to be 10, 11, 12? Did you even know what sex was? Again, different people mature at different rates. I don't even know why I'm humoring you. No. No 12-year-old can possibly consent to sex with an adult. That's called pedophilia. 
I think there are exceptions. <laughs> okay. Well, I think exceptional 12-year-olds understand what consent is. I think that's pure evil. I think consent is, uh, how do you define consent? And I think you're probably not safe in society. I'm wondering what, how we define consent collectively. My, I wouldn't want my 11-year-old around you, that's for sure. Believe me, I don't want to be around your 11-year-old. But what I'm saying is, how do you define consent? And that's all I'm saying. How do you actually define it? Anyways, so, I mean, currently how we define it legally is 18 years old. So 18 times 365 rotations around the sun. That's what we define an adult as. Legally, that is how we define it right now. An adult. That's right. And so... You said consent. And so I'm saying, this is the philosophical question of like, how many grains of sand yeah, before you, you should not eat? be. <laughs> you should not be philosophizing about child sex with adults. You should not be. It's taboo, right? You should not be getting I'm philosophical not even need to talk about it. It's so about touchy raping. that we can't even talk about it. Yeah, yeah, because it's called rape. It's called rape of a child, and it causes long-term mental and physical harm. I hear that. I 100% hear that a lot of trauma has been done. Obscene. But again, I think, let me ask you this, do you subscribe to the notion that, the popular notion that sex is harmful to children? That you would want to censor pornography from your children? You don't want them to see it. You think sex is 100%. Evil. Pornography for children? You want children seeing pornography? Have you, you have any, any idea what pornography is doing to kids in this culture? I think sex is not something should be vilified. I think a proper adult can educate their children about all the entanglements of sex. Have you ever watched porn? Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Do you, do you know what's in porn? Uh, uh, you tell me. The violence? The Some disgusting kinds. nature? You uh, think, sure. my gosh, why don't you just let kids be kids? How about that? Again. How about just let kids have an innocent childhood? Again, the they don't even know what sex child. is until Again. they're 12. Again, we're uh, going back to that dichotomy yeah, of adults and children, and how do we define that definition? How do we actually define that edge? Okay. All right. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Let's back up. And I'm sorry. That was a lot. That was a lot. And you're probably saying, and I quote, wow. Wow. A couple of reasons why this is important. One, if we can't articulate why it's not okay if we don't have an objective standard of right and wrong, then anything and everything will be justified, reasoned out, and excused and permitted. So long as the person doing the excusing has more power than you. If there is no God, then it's just might makes right. Ultimately, whether the might comes in the form of a very powerful individual, whether the might comes in the form of a very powerful organization or a conglomeration of organizations, whether power comes from 51% deciding that they want it to be X, Y, and Z way. This guy, you can't see his face in the audio that I'm playing for you, but I'll put a clip link, a link to the clip in the description for this podcast episode, you can watch 
if you want to. But he's smirking the whole time, and he's got his black hoodie on with anime on the front, and he's holding a sign that reads, I kid you not, a game for lonely bears. His question is, what is a child? So the question progression is, hath God said? That's the first. That's the opening salvo. That's the first. Hath God said? And then if you watch Matt Walsh's documentary, what is a woman? The other side of the coin is, what is a man? Do we know how to define who is and is not a man, who is and is not a woman? Once that distinction has broken down entirely, then it follows. What is a marriage? And I'm speaking in not a theoretical sense. I'm talking about what we've come to already. We're there. Not it's coming. Not maybe, perhaps it's all for X. No, no. Look, listen, it's here. It's right now. The next question is being asked by this guy at UC Berkeley. What is a child? How do you define what a child is? Now, he's not all wrong to point out that there's a certain arbitrariness to 18, for instance. Why is the age 18? For some things, for instance, and the age is 21 for other things, for instance. Certain rights in a human sense or in a legal sense are withheld from even 18-year-olds until they're 21 years old. For that matter, 35. You have to be 35 to become president of the United States. Why 35? Well, let's figure that out. Let's think about it. Now, for the Christian, going back to the personality tests business, if you don't find personality tests in the Bible, you also don't find that 35 years old is how old you should be before you can become president of the United States of America. You don't find that in the Bible. You also don't find that 21 years old is the age you have to be in order to buy alcohol or cigarettes. You also don't find that 18 years old is the age that you have to be in order for people to legally recognize you as an adult. But what do we find? We find the concept of childhood and of children. And we see the distinction between male and female. And we see the distinction between child and parent or son and father. We see the distinction between husband and wife, between father and mother, between wise man and fool, between wicked and righteous. We see the distinction between right and wrong, between good and evil, between life and death. That's what we find in God's word. We see the distinction between sin, which leads to death, and faith, through which we have access to God's grace, and it's counted as righteousness in Christ. But that faith is not apart from works. It's not opposed to works. In fact, if we have faith, we will demonstrate that faith by our works as James says in the New Testament. 
Show me your faith without works, he challenges. I will show you my faith by my works. You'll know what I believe because that's what I do. I act according to my faith. We have to recognize that even though there's a distinction, you cannot disconnect. You cannot separate the causal relationship between what we believe and what we do in a society where it becomes unacceptable for you to try and persuade your neighbor, your family, your friends, your enemies for that matter, to believe in Jesus, to believe what God's word says, you will also see as people believe that less and less, believe in Jesus, believe on God's word and the promises of God, the character of God, you will also see people acting in a contrary way, like this guy is acting in a contrary way. If we tolerate that, if we permit that, if we allow that to be protected, rewarded, legitimated, normalized, we will get more of the same. And at the end of that road is civilizational collapse. It is destruction. It is death. It is every kind of evil. But it all goes back to, hath God said, neutrality is not an option. Christian federalism, that's an option. Just saying. Moving on. Google should dismiss more employees, cut excessive salaries from median 300,000, investor argues. The Children's Investment Fund Management CEO, Christopher Hohn, called for Google parent company Alphabet to reduce its headcount by another 25,000 workers, which is just mind-blowing. Until we moved to Greeley, Colorado back in 2019, I've never even lived in a city that had that many people. But if Google laid off 25,000, that would be still leaving 150,000, which is wild. That's a lot of people. That's a whole lot of people that work for Google. Ben Zeisloft reports over at Daily Wire, Pelosi dumped Google stock weeks before Justice Department unveiled antitrust lawsuit. Ooh, Democrat from California, speaking of the Californication of the United States and the free world. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi disclosed a sale of 30,000 shares in Google's parent company, Alphabet, roughly one month before the DOJ opened an antitrust lawsuit into the technology firm. Is that immoral? Set aside the question of whether it's legal or illegal. Is that moral? Or does that represent unequal weights and measures? If you or I had insider information and we did what Nancy Pelosi has just done, we would go to prison. People do go to prison for this. So then it becomes a question of unequal weights and measures, which is another way of saying that this becomes a entirely subjective, can I get away with it kind of a question. And I was talking with a family member, and I won't say who, but I'll just say a family member here recently, because I think real examples stick in my mind and going back to needing to be not just theoretical, but needing to be practical. This is a real conversation, not a theoretical conversation, not a hypothetical that I just recently had where I was pointing to the ATF rule on pistol braces. And I said, this is unconscionable. 
it's illegal what they are presenting as choices for potentially as many as 40 million Americans who own these pistol braces. It's illegal. It is against the law for them to create a gun registry database and try to get 40 million Americans to put their info into it. Pistol braces are not a firearm. They're a component. And the ATF will say, ah, yes, but in the interest of consistency, and in the interest of consistency, you know, we regulate SBRs, short-barreled uh, short uh, rifles. Therefore, if we've just changed our mind and realized that a pistol brace does not make the distinction between what is or isn't an SBR, a AR-15, for instance, with a shorter than 16-inch long barrel. In the interest of consistency, we have to treat all of these AR-15s, AK-47s that have pistol braces the same way that we would an SBR, which is regulate. You have to ask our permission to own one. You have to pay a tax stamp. You have to submit fingerprints. We have to do an extensive background check. And yes, we take your info and we put it into a database so that we know where everybody who's got permission to own these SBRs lives, what their background is. We can develop a profile of them. I say, in the interest of consistency, you should Lego my ego with regards to SBRs as well. You could be consistent that direction too. And that would be better because the second amendment to the United States constitution is pretty clear. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You're infringing on the second amendment. You're also setting up a workaround and a loophole for creating a national gun registry database where you know where all the Americans who own firearms are. And if you pair that data with big tech censorship, now we can develop a profile of the kind of people who might potentially protect the United States against a foreign invasion, let's say, for instance, from China, or a tyrannical communist government here in the US. And then you target those individuals and you pick them off one by one that's the danger with a gun registry database. And so I'm telling this family member of mine who will remain nameless, I said, this is illegal. And his response was, I kid you not, our government does things that are illegal all the time, like a lot. They do a lot of illegal things all the time. And what? Are you going to tell the ATF no? Are you going to say no to them? Which is just extraordinarily jarring for me to hear it put in such blunt terms. There's an apathy, there's an ambivalence, there's an amoral quality to the admission that, yes, our government does do illegal things. And so what? That's the way it's been. We know. I know. doesn't matter. Who cares? Do what you're told. You don't want the trouble. Are you going to tell the ATF no? Hmm. Is somebody going to tell Nancy Pelosi no? Hmm. Moving on. And we're almost to the part where I tell you about the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Definitely check out, and, and I think we will get into this more in our next episode or in a up-and-coming episode. So stay tuned for that. We don't have the time for it right now, like I wish we did, because there's so much, there's so much to talk about. James O'Keefe... And Project Veritas, Veritas, by the way, 
is Latin for truth. So there's a good project, Project Truth, Project Veritas, my writing club with the other members of the board of directors for the Reformed Conservative. We call In Gladii Veritas, which is the sword of truth. It's a great name. I love it. I didn't come up with it, but I love it. But Project Veritas did one of their undercover sting operations, investigative reporting, of a certain director of worldwide R&D strategic operations and mRNA scientific planning for the big pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. This guy's name is Jordan Tristan Walker. And he is caught on camera admitting that Pfizer is actively mutating, intentionally mutating, experimenting with COVID variations so that they can develop vaccines for COVID variants that haven't even happened yet. And he admits that if the public knew about that, it would be a really bad thing. Well, now the public knows about it. No thanks to your legacy media. No thanks to the U.S. government. No thanks to big tech. Mad props to James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. When this guy is confronted, because that's something that Project Veritas will do. They will do the undercover operation. And then occasionally, James O'Keefe will be just there in the place of who the person being reported on thought they were meeting again. And Jordan Tristan Walker is there, he thinks, to meet a date. And just the way he talks, the way he carries himself, the way he expresses himself, and also based on the undercover footage, I get the strong impression that he is a gay man. He's a person of color. He's a gay man. And he works for Big Pharma. (laughs) So he is very intersectionally protected against a lot of things he might do and otherwise get in trouble for under normal circumstances, which again goes back to the unequal weights and measures. Yes, there is a double standard, but not in the direction they're telling you. You are more protected if you are a person of color and you get into trouble. You are more protected if you are a sexual minority and you get into trouble. But he freaks out. He freaks out on James O'Keefe and the camera crew that's at this restaurant, this cafe. He gets violent. He calls the cops. He tries to destroy their iPad or actually does destroy their iPad that they were recording with or had the recordings on. Not that that is going to make those recordings go away. These guys aren't amateurs. You think they showed up with the only physical copy of that evidence? Come on. He does it anyways because he's freaking out like a cornered animal. But he also says in the before, before it turns out that he is actually being filmed by Project Veritas, he says that government regulators who keep tabs on Pfizer and these other big pharma companies, when they retire from government, they go to work for those big pharmaceutical companies. And so it's a revolving door. They're not going to be overly harsh. They're not going to be overly strict with the big pharma companies that they intend to go and get high paying jobs as lobbyists for or managers for when they get out of the government sector, the government sector of the economy. Because there's just that many people who work for the United States government. 
It is an entire sector of the economy, which is horrifying. But this is not the first video Project Veritas has done. They also did one uh, about a year ago with some Johnson & Johnson employees, one business manager, one scientist. This is some pretty intense stuff. You should definitely go check out Project Veritas on YouTube or go to their website directly just in case some things are not allowed on YouTube. ProjectVeritas.com is where you can find them. But moving on. Biden judicial nominee can't answer basic questions. Quote, what does Article 5 of the Constitution do? End quote. Here's some reporting by the Columbia Bugle, highlighted by Harris Rigby over at Not the Bee. I'm going to play a little bit of this. It's not long. It's about a minute of Senator Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana, asking a question of a Biden judicial nominee regarding the United States Constitution, which is fair. That's that's a fair question to ask. These are fair questions to ask. Take a listen. Judge, on the far end, uh, tell tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Article 5 is not coming to mind at the moment. Okay. How about Article 2? Neither is Article 2. Okay. Do you know what purposivism is? Um, In my 12 years as an assistant attorney general and my nine years serving as a judge, I was not faced with that precise question. Um, We are the highest trial court in Washington State, so I'm frequently faced with um, issues that I'm not familiar with, and I thoroughly review the law, our research, and apply the law to the facts presented to me. Well, you're going to be faced with it as a, if you're confirmed. I can assure you of that. Mm. So what is purposivism? Now, a quick Google search, because I didn't go to law school. I've never been an attorney. I've never been a judge. I am not a judicial nominee. A quick Google search tells me that purposivists are, in contrast to textualists, According to Harvard.edu, what divides textualists from purposivists? Modern textualists acknowledge that statutory language has meaning only in context and that judges must consider a range of extra textual evidence to ascertain textual meaning. Sophisticated purposivists, moreover, have posited their own reasonable person framework to make purposive interpretation more objective. Now, what about Article 5 of the Constitution? Article 5, if I take a look at constitution.congress.gov, reads, In part, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 
shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. What does all that mean? Basically, this is an overview of how to propose amendments to the Constitution. So bureaucrats, for instance, can't just amend the Constitution. The President of the United States cannot just unilaterally amend the Constitution. A simple majority, so 51% of senators or representatives in the House cannot just amend the Constitution. There's a process, and that process is laid out, and it might be confusing, complicated, boring, but it's a it's a big deal. It's a kind of a big deal that we would know what the process is for amending the Constitution. It's not something that is supposed to be changed willy-nilly or overly easy. What about Article 2? Article 2 of the Constitution concerns the executive branch. So Clause 1 has to do with the president's role. Clause 2 has to do with electors. Clause 3, electoral college count. Clause 4, electoral votes. Clause 5, qualifications. Clause 6, succession. Clause 7, compensation and emoluments. Clause 8, presidential oath of office. Section 2 has to do with powers, military, administrative, and clemency. Clause 2 is advice and consent. Clause 3 is Senate recess. Section 3 has to do with duties. Section 4 has to do with impeachment. (laughs) Maybe that's where Senator Kennedy is going. I don't know. But somebody who is a nominee to be a federal judge, to sit in the federal judiciary, particularly if they have been a judge and an attorney for Washington state for a long time, the highest court in the state for a long time, they should know this stuff. They should know it. They should be knowledgeable. Now, one reason you might not care to know it so much is if we have a lawless bureaucracy and a lawless judiciary that writes laws and gets confused about whether it is the judicial branch or the legislative branch or the executive branch, if there's a confusion because we don't care, because it's all up for grabs, because it's actually more the view that we should re- that we should remove the impediments to a rather leftist idea of progress, well, then maybe you don't memorize, maybe you don't commit to memory what our Constitution actually says. If you don't plan to abide by it, Maybe you don't need to memorize it or know it terribly well. If you're going to just ignore it anyways, it's hard to ignore it and memorize it at the same time. That's fair. Moving on. Here is the main course, all of those being appetizers for the main course. So I read the Communist Manifesto yesterday while cleaning, while looking for my wife's wallet because it's gone missing. One of the kids might have run off with it or... Andrew, speaking of him being one and now mobile and a child, he could have potentially picked it up off the floor and thrown it in the trash and we didn't catch it. So Lauren's got an appointment with the DMV to get a fresh copy of her driver's license. Also, we're going to have to order new 
credit cards and debit cards and membership cards and things like that. But I was cleaning, looking, and listening to the Communist Manifesto, which is a kind of irony, I suppose, that I was looking for a wallet and <laughs> we couldn't find it. <laughs> I was cleaning and listening to the Communist Manifesto. It's not terribly long. It's about four hours on normal speed, two hours and some change if you listen to it on double speed the way that I did. But here's my short review. Given the frequency and casualness of the phrase surplus population utilized throughout this short theoretical work, it is little wonder that communism in practice has been such a bloody murderous form of government in the 20th and 21st century. As Marx and Engels admit, religious sentiments are needed to make communism work. If we can say that it ever works or is at least tried with passionate zeal, but religion is not welcome in a communist state of mind, heart, soul, or state. Marx was fascinated by Lucifer and it shows as he devised a rather satanic prescription for the world's problems with violence, a matter of course, and the casual dispensation of arbitrary injustice, always excusable in the cause of of the masses with the burden of proof shifted to those wronged in the thinking of the communist who convinces himself and his comrades that they are doing as close a thing to God's work as their ideology will permit them to conceive of. So the individual communist can be as evil as he likes. So long as he claims his evil serves a supposedly greater good. If he is awful to a man, woman or child, he will say he is being so for the purpose of, of all men, women, and children, or else he will fall back on some glib reference to surplus population, which he never regards himself as being a part of, only everyone else who might potentially get in the way. It's very convenient. It's very convenient to reason your way out of right and wrong, good and evil, wise and foolish, by shifting the burden of proof to those you wrong, all the while refusing to admit any reference to the creator of mankind or to his word. If you can say the ends justify the means, this is serving the greater good. You can do any evil and sleep well at night because in the end, somehow, some way it will work out. It'll be worth it. This is the or else for Christians who want to stay out of politics, who don't want to pay attention to the news, who don't want to talk about these things, they don't want to think about these things. This is the brave new world. It's communistic. It will experiment on viruses. And even, I think, in reading Mark Morano's book, The Great Reset, release those viruses. And even the executive with Pfizer, who got all upset with Project Veritas, he says, he thinks that this is exactly how the COVID virus came about in the first place. It was experimentation. You, know, you can hear him in the video asked whether this was gain of function research in Wuhan, whether it is gain of function research that Pfizer is doing to develop new vaccines. He thinks for a moment, tries to figure out a way to use a different word 
so as to avoid the truth. If we call it something else, just like with critical race theory, just like with every form of sexual immorality, just like with regards to ignoring and undermining and abolishing the United States Constitution, if you call it something else, well then, you can do whatever you want. Directed evolution. Let's not call it gain of function. Let's call it directed evolution. Yeah, that's gain of function. You're an evil person. You're a corrupt person. So, in other words, he thinks that gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China, funded by Dr. Fauci at the NIH, is where COVID came from in the first place. And now Pfizer is doing still more gain-of-function research to try and develop new vaccines, and the regulators are not going to do anything about it because the regulators want to be able to get a very lucrative job at Pfizer, at Johnson & Johnson, when they decide they're tired of working for the U.S. government. Mm. If people die, we can just call them surplus population. If we can medicate them, keep them happy, deal with their emotional disturbances, deal with their complaints by just removing any attachment whatsoever, well then, it's Brave New World. Seize the means of production, control, regulate the means of production, then distribute to each according to his need, from each according to his ability, all the while vilifying those who say, no, this is my family, this is my child, this is my wife. This is my house. This is my car. This is my job. This is my business. This is my church. That's selfish. It needs to be everyone's. And Marx and Engels talk about this, how in a communist society, you don't just share possessions. You share women. So you have to abolish marriage. Marriage is just a selfish institution where you are saying, this is my woman. This is my wife. Abolish that. All of the women in the community are for all of the men. They all share. Well, I guess that makes sense of what has happened with the institution of marriage in this country and why the left is for so-called marriage equality. They're, they're for no-fault divorce. They're for terminating parental rights if parents object to their kids being talked into transgenderism, androgenizing. And that's another thing. The transgender movement is an extension of the communist ideal because we don't want to say that men have some things that women don't have and women have some things that men don't have. If you embrace transgender ideology, you are of a piece with the communist ideal. You're not even just going to stop at redistributing relationships or property, you're going to redistribute organs that you are born with by God's design. We're going to redistribute everything according to the communist ideal, unless Christians wise up and repent of apathy, of indifference, of being disengaged, being disobedient. How would it be if we hid behind the gospel the good news is not that we turn a blind eye and stop calling for repentance. Or what? Do any of these people not need to repent? Any of them? 
Do people who are in government, who are regulators, who are bureaucrats, who are elected officials, who are candidates for the judiciary, who are presidents of the United States even, do any of these people not need to repent? That we would say, we're not going to get into that. Again, what did John the Baptist say that got him arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded? He said to Herod Antipas, repent, because Herod Antipas had taken his brother's wife, Herodias. Now, in the Roman conception, it was awful for Herod's brother and then sister-in-law to get divorced and for Herod to marry his brother's former wife. But in God's law, that's adultery. And the New Testament is clear about that. And John knew that and called Herod to repentance. And he got arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded for it. Do we find fault with John? Do we say that he got a little carried away? He didn't recognize the distinction. He should have been focused on the good news instead of calling people to repentance? No. No, we don't. That's folly. That's spiritualizing cowardice and disobedience on our part. A couple of books I want to recommend. The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration by Paul Kengor, publisher's summary, two decades after the publication of the Black Book of Communism, which I have a copy of. I haven't finished reading it, but I have it, if anybody wants to borrow it. Nearly everyone is, or at least should be aware, of the immense evil produced by that devilish ideology first hatched when Karl Marx penned his Communist Manifesto two centuries ago. Far too many people, however, separate Marx the man from the evils wrought by the oppressive ideology and theory that bears his name. That is a grave mistake. Not only did the horrific results of Marxism follow directly from Marx's twisted ideas, but the man himself penned some downright devilish things. Well before Karl Marx was writing about the hell of communism, he was writing about hell. Quote, thus heaven I've forfeited, I know it full well. He wrote in a poem in 1837, a decade before his manifesto, quote, my soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. That certainly seemed to be the perverse destiny for Marx's ideology, which consigned to death over 100 million souls in the 20th century alone. No other theory in all of history has led to the deaths of so many innocents. How could the father of lies not be involved? At long last here in this book by Professor Paul Kengor is a close, careful look at the diabolical side of Karl Marx, a side of a man whose fascination with the devil and his domain would echo into the 20th century and continue to wreak havoc today. It is a tragic portrait of a man and an ideology, a chilling retrospective on an evil that should have never been let out of its pit. It is available on Audible, by the way. There's another book, and this is why I am somewhat regretting having planned out what all books I was going to read this year. But there's another book by Richard Wormbrand, which comes up in the listeners also enjoyed section on Audible when I looked up The Devil and Karl Marx. This one, not very long, four hours, 22 minutes. It's called Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism. Richard Wormbrand, you may recognize as having been a Christian missionary and pastor who was persecuted for his faith under the Soviet Union. Voice of the Martyrs has promoted his book and his story for a long time. But here's the publisher's summary for 
Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism. Karl Marx, co-author of the revolutionary text, The Communist Manifesto, grew up in a Christian family, and his early writings showed belief in a Christian worldview. Yet in his adulthood, Marx embraced a deep personal rebellion against God and all Christian values. In Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism, Richard Wormbrand explores the development of Marx's anti-religious perspective that led to the philosophical foundations of communism. By examining Marx's writings as well as biographical accounts, Wormbrand builds a convincing case that Marx adhered to a belief system that opposes God. Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism provides significant insight into why Christians and the church have been targeted by Marxists and communists alike as it exposes the evil roots of a theory and government system that continue to persecute Christians in the present. Those might be some good books to read. I think I'm going to read them. I haven't read them. I'm recommending them because even just the summary here and tying and connecting that there would be a fascination on Marx's part with Satan to the fruit of this belief system after having read the Marxist playbook, the Communist Manifesto, I would recommend that you do as well and tie these things together and recognize how Christians cannot be neutral here. Communists are real, first of all. They're not a figment of the imagination. They're not some mythological creature. Communists are real. They have real ideas. They have a plan. They have a track record. We've seen what they do and they can do and they want to do. They communicate their ideas. We know what they think. We know what they believe. We know that we know how they operate. It would be absurd to ignore the rising threat of communism in the United States of America and in the world. It would be evil for us to do nothing and say nothing as we are watching it take over in our day. So we can't. We can't do that. By God's grace, we won't do that. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.